Well, I want to give you the main point up front. Trials are inevitable opportunities for joy that bring us to spiritual maturity as we intelligently, faithfully, and humbly encounter adversity. Trials are inevitable opportunities. We will see that. That bring us to spiritual maturity as we intelligently, we use our mind faithfully, we go to God in prayer humbly, we recognize God is no respecter of persons encounter adversity that comes our way. Here's some other points. Underneath the joyful purpose for trials, you see first on your hand out there that trials are inevitable, not unusual. Suffering is guaranteed to the godly. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. If you live long enough, you will suffer. Some of you younger folks may not have suffered yet, but you will. You will lose a father. You'll lose a child. You'll get sick. You'll work for someone who doesn't love Jesus, and he'll let you know that. You'll work in an industry that doesn't love Jesus, and they'll let you know that. There'll be a rash that comes up, and you'll wonder, what is that? Is that skin cancer? Trials are inevitable. They're not unusual. Whether it's in life and just because we are born into a fallen world, or whether it comes at the persecution of others, trials are inevitable, not unusual. Yet, at the very same time, because the Christian life is a paradox, we are slaves, but we are free. When we die to self, we will live forever. Trials are opportunities for joy. Did you just say trial and joy in the same sense? I did. Well, where do you get that? I get it. From James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice that when there. It does not say, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, if you meet a trial in this life. If you meet a trial. It says when. And it literally says, in the Greek it says when. So they are inevitable and they're not unusual. And it's an opportunity for joy. Because our very first command, I was thinking about this this morning, James doesn't really teach us so much, although he talks about it in one one and in one eighteen he'll look at it, and in 2 he'll look at it. He doesn't show us, like Paul, how to become a Christian. It's how to behave as a Christian. In his very first verse, after an introduction, he says, be joyful when you have pain. Because I think James, guided by the Holy Spirit, understood this is going to be a big issue in life. He will go on at the end of this chapter and talk about the Word of God and obeying the Word of God, not just being a hearer, but a doer. But first and foremost, he says, count it all joy. The very first of 59 commands was think, reckon, consider, consider. Paul said, I thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus. I was considering it. The author of Hebrews said Moses considered the sufferings of Christ greater than that of being in Egypt. Peter thought it well to remind those believers over and over again 
to stir them up by way of reminder. It begins in our minds to consider, to reckon, to think. And he says, think it all, joy. Pure joy, complete joy, great joy, nothing but joy. Those are your translations. Not that we make light of any situation or we're flipping about it, but we try hard in our mind to say, God is at work. God, what are you trying to do? And it says, when you meet, we are not Christian masochists. We don't go out seeking pain. But when it comes, when literally we fall into, the term is used only one more time, it's when the good Samaritan fell into the robbers. He met a trial, Luke 10.30. When you meet trials of various kinds, there is all kinds of joy. There is complete joy, pure joy, nothing but joy in various trials. Not just a trial, but many trials. From sicknesses to relational problems, trials are everywhere for everyone to experience. They're multicolored, from minimal to painful, from asthma to autism, from headaches to heart attacks. God uses every little trial and every large trial to shape His saints. And if we know this, we reckon this, consider this, we will avoid questioning God in them. Yes, you can ask God questions, more on that in a minute, but we will not question Him and say, why am I being punished? What are you doing, God? Do you not love me? The tenor of that question is off. We do not see trials as the origin of joy, just an occasion for joy. Our origin of joy comes as we see God and Jesus and we watch them and we fix our eyes upon the Savior. We will have an occasion to express joy when my mother's sister is diagnosed with stomach cancer and she watches her die. It's an occasion for joy. When you fear going to the doctor because you know what might be said. When your wallet gets stolen by an imposter at a wedding while you're preaching and he goes out and he spends money on a $600 diamond while you're officiating a wedding. When your plumbing repeatedly needs to be fixed or like the Barnwell's experience last week, when your plumbing needs to be fixed and your wife is going to have a baby. Or if you go on a mission trip to New Zealand and you come back and you're feeling a little bit of a fever and they find out they have Q fever and then they call you in to the uh, Homeland Security just to figure out why this happened and you were over there serving the Lord going on the mission trip and just brushed up against the sheep and now you have that infection. Those are not hypothetical situations. Those happen. Those aren't just out of some illustration book for preachers. All those illustrations I used when I first got up here and those right there, those are real life situations. Opportunities for joy? How do you consider this all joy? What do, you, what do we need? We do so by reflecting biblically on the purpose of trials. For you know. Verse 3. For you know. Knowledge is necessary. There is no Christian transformation without biblical information. Just remember that. Paul said, Be renewed. Be, do not be transformed by the, uh, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Peter wanted to remind the readers of the truth they already knew. And so James says here, For you know. Literally, knowing. This supports. How, how, do, how are you joyful? Knowing. How do you consider it all joy? You 
think, consider, reckon, knowing. The testing of your faith. Trials are tests of faith. We'll see next week God never tempts anyone, but God tests people. He tested Abraham in the Old Testament. And these are tests of faith, and they produce steadfastness. They produce steadfastness. Which brings us to our fourth one. Trials are an inevitable, not unusual. Trials are opportunities for joy. Trials come in many shapes and sizes. Trials serve a purpose. There's a purpose to all this. It's not random. God's not sitting up there, let me see how much pain I can cause just because I can do it. That is not our God. If you've read in the community groups, He is not a distant ogre. He's a loving Father. And as I will use situations sometimes to allow those kids to wrestle with the situation because I want them to learn something greater. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. What's the purpose of trials? The end of verse 4. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James gets right to it. He doesn't. James is, a, is an author that doesn't want to develop much as Paul. If we turn back to Romans 5, Paul gives us a process in Romans 5. This is what Paul says. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Been justified, therefore there is peace. Through Him we've obtained this access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then he says, more than that. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and this is where James leaves out this process, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and that hope does not disappoint. And James says, the, the sum of all that, where Paul likes to take his, go through the process, James just says, count it all joy, because when you endure trials, guess what? You will be perfect and complete, and you will lack nothing. So when when trials come and when life is tough and when tears are right there, God, you're just you're working on making me perfect and complete. We will then be fully known, says 1 Corinthians. There will be a, an eternal weight, a heaviness of the glory of which we will be beyond all comparison. Think of the heaviest thing out there. Think of the most glorious thing out there. Think of the Grand Canyon. Doesn't even compare to what we will be like when we see God and we meet Jesus face to face and we will be perfect because only what is perfect can stand in the presence of perfection. God wants you to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing because He's perfect and complete. He lacks nothing. C.S. Lewis said, if we would see the most ordinary saint, ordinary saint, if we see them in in their eternal glory, we would be tempted to worship them. And so trials, ultimately, Romans 8.28, were conformed to the image of Jesus. God is using trials to conform us to the image of His Son so that we would be perfect and complete, so that we can be with perfection and completeness forever. And this doesn't happen overnight. And there are no quick fixes. Sorry, health and wealth folks, there are no quick fixes. 
And so whether you are not in a trial, you need to be prepared for one. Or whether you're having the waves crashing in on you right now, trials serve a purpose. They make us more like Jesus. The end result is our perfection so that we can be with God forever. However, we often lack seeing this. We often lack the wisdom. When a trial comes, when trial comes to me, do I have the wisdom immediately? Does it just ooze over out of my mouth? Oh, this is why this is happening in my life. God is here to comfort me and conform me to be more like Jesus so that one day I will be with Him forever. That is why this happened when I have this little money and this car thing happens or this leak happens or why is this relational issue happening? We lack wisdom. And James doesn't leave us hanging. If any of you lacks wisdom, verse 5, let him ask of God. And so we, we ask of God, and it describes our God here, not a distant ogre. He gives generously to all without reproach. A God who is generous and gives to all without reproach. You see, if, if there is a joyful purpose, count it all joy when you encounter trials. There is a prayerful power that comes as we talk to God about what's going on in our life. We serve a generous God. He doesn't just keep the goodies up here just dispense every now and then. He is generous. And He gives to all. He doesn't discriminate. Without reproach, He's not going to say, oh, I can't believe you're asking me this again. Didn't we, I mean, didn't we cover this last week? Unbelievable, Rumley. It's not what He does. Yeah, I know. Remember last time? Keep coming. I know. This is the God we serve. Literally, if you look up what God gives, God gives light to the world. God gives law to a people. God gives land to a nation. He gives success to a remnant. Most importantly, He gives us His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that those of us who are guilty, we might be pardoned. To those of us who are miserable, we might receive mercy. And until He comes back, until this One who gave His life for us, until He comes back, it says in 1 Thessalonians, God gives His Holy Spirit to comfort us. And we must ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And there's a promise. It will be given to Him. But, verse 6, we've got to ask Faithfully, in faith, from faith, we've got to ask not that we, we don't walk by sight, but faith. I don't see the, the reason for this trial, but I'm in faith asking you, God, to show me what I can learn. And we've got to do it, as James says, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Here he is saying this generous God gives to everyone and without reproach, but he will not give to the doubter. And in 8 he says he is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. 
And you're thinking, well, I've doubted. How do you talk about that? The surf of the sea never looks the same. Unanchored ships get blown to and fro. Ephesians 4 talks about that. When he says you can't doubt, you're like a double-minded person. Literally, it's double-souled. Two souls. You are praying in hypocrisy. You really don't believe God can give you wisdom in this situation. You really don't believe God's working for your best in this situation. And so, you're not coming to God wholehearted. We've memorized the verse. Let's just take it to its next level. Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. We're good at that when things are going well. Oh, I'm trusting in Jesus. Debts are paid. Think trusting in Jesus. With all my heart. Then it says, and lean not on your own understanding. See, when we don't understand, that's when we start to question. Not ask questions, but to question. There is a difference. Uh, Jesus Christ was real before His Father. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? John the Baptist said, Now, is this the one of whom we heard? Doubting Thomas asked good questions. We call him Doubting Thomas. He's actually a true seeker. Of, of the Lord because when he was confronted with all the facts and when he understood he didn't lean on his understanding but when he finally understood he said my Lord and my God and so asking questions is okay read the Psalms full of questions questioning is a problem and Daniel Doriani says in his commentary doubters must be willing to leave their questions and trust God with a whole heart Because when we are double-minded, we're really hypocrites. Yeah, I trust God. No, I really don't. Yeah, I trust God. No, I really don't. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, it's Mr. Facing both ways. So the, the idea behind prayer here is when you lack wisdom in a specific situation, whatever that might be, God, I really know that you'll have my best here. And in my flesh, I want it to be done with and over. This whole idea of steadfastness, make it more fast than stead, <laughs> right? But I really want your best here, and I don't want to be double-minded. I don't want to say I trust you to the world and then, and then not trust you enough to come talk to you about it and, re- and welcome the answer that you should give me through the counsel of others or from your word. This, com- this is comforting because we're his workmanship. Ephesians 2.10 says that. You are His poema, His workmanship, His special creation. And like Michelangelo, God is just chipping away at the statue of His saint that's underneath the marble. And He uses trials to do that. There's a joyful purpose. There's powerful prayer. But then there's a humble perspective. Let the lowly brother boast Boast, literally proclaim verbally and out loud. It's usually used in a negative sense. Do not boast. Because when you boast, you're not necessarily glorifying God. You're telling the world of yourself. Don't boast, says Paul most of the time. But James here turns that term on its head and says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. The rich person will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, 
so also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Trials change our perspective. The rich and poor are all on equal ground when it comes to trials. God shows no partiality. Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. God created the rich, God created the poor, and together when trials come, He is no respecter of persons. Trials come to those who have lots and lots of money. Just drive up valley, ask how some marriages are going, ask how the economy is going. Uh, God doesn't go, mm, oh, their bottom line's over a million. We're not going to touch them. Both rich and poor then can, and this is where trials should drive us, Second Corinthians 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet became poor for your sake, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Trials change our perspective. When we encounter trials, I have never met more humble people than those who have walked through trials, rich or poor, and who have trusted in God along the way. They are a humble people. And then when other trials come, there's, a, there's not a smirk on their face. There's a, there's a, and it's not even a grin, but there's a smile on their face going, you know, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. They change our perspective. See, in America, we, this sermon within a sermon, we think money buys security and protects us from trials. God says, no. It's like, it's like a weed. It'll die. And trials bring us, look at verse 12, to spiritual maturity. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The final two ideas there. Trials bring us to spiritual maturity. It's taking verse 4 and putting it with verse 12. Let endurance have its perfect work. And it's called endurance and let it have its work and steadfastness is because it doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> God, give me patience and give it to me now. It doesn't happen like that. The world would say something else. The world would say, look, hypothetically speaking, you've got a trial, then let's just go and do the drive through and we'll give you a little formula and then it should spit out how you should react. That's just not how God works. That's why He gives us 66 books. Each and every one of them, we could walk through every single book and pick out trial after trial after trial after trial. It's because God has got something that he sees that we may not see, and he's just chipping away. He's got to, you know, this is the Lord with me. He's got to have some more patience. Let's give him that. Like back crack. Oh, that kind of popped, but okay. Lord, what am I lacking here? What wisdom am I lacking in this situation? Help me. But the, be the best one of these, I think his trials come to an end. Once you have stood the test of time, or the test, you're going to receive something, and these trials are done. 
We must stand the test. We must love God. He says you get the crown of life comes to those who love God. And we receive the crown. And I think this idea of crown here is not a crown, um, a life-giving crown, but it is the crown of eternal life. In the Greek, it's called an appositional statement. This is the crown which is eternal life. John 5.24 says, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you've believed in Him, received, as John uses in his gospel, you have eternal life. You've gotten a taste of it now and God's using trials to conform us to His image and one day you will receive in its fullness, in its beauty, no more trials, no more tears, no more pain, life forever. And as one musician said, that's a mighty long time. And it just, you think about forever. That's the eternal promise. Blessed, happy is that person. It bookends, if you notice that, verse 12 and, and verse 2, count it all joy and blessing. In the midst of trials, you mean a Christian can be joyful and happy? Not a, not a surface happiness, not a, not a trite joy, but a deep joy that comes from knowing. My God is able and He will deliver. But if not, not going to compromise. I'm going to see how he's using this to conform you. And so here are some applications we can take away from James 2, James 1, 2 through 12. When trials come, first of all, think. Think about how God is working for your joy. Huh? Yes. Think about how God is working for your joy. He wants you to be perfect and complete. He wants you to be with Him forever. He's using whatever's coming down the pipe to conform you to the image of His Son. Think about it. Step back and go, okay. What can I learn here, Lord? And that leads you to the second one. Ask. Think, then ask. Ask Him. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask. God, show me where I'm lacking wisdom in this particular situation. Not only do we use our minds, we use our mouths. Lord, show me. I'm asking. I'm lacking wisdom in something and you're using this trial to teach me. For some of us, it may be a perspective on the Christian life. For some of us, it could be patience. For some of us, it could be purity. For some of us, It could be God Himself. Trials could be coming because God wants you to know Him. I've got a quote that I want you to read with me from Dr. David Pallison in a book, Seen with New Eyes. Why do trials come? He asked in the context of motivation. What makes you tick? What sun does your planet revolve around? Where do you go find your garden of delight? What lights up your world? What fountain of life, hope, and delight do you drink from? What food sustains your life? What really matters to you? What fairy castle do you construct in the clouds? What pipe dreams tantalize you or terrify you? Around what do you organize your life? And what magnetic north orients your world? Many gripping metaphors can express the question, what are you really living for? 
Notice that to be ruled, say, by deep thirst for intimacy, achievement, respect, health, or wealth does not define these as legitimate, unproblematic desires. They function perversely, placing ourselves at the center of the universe. We are meant to long supremely for the Lord Himself. We are meant to long supremely, supremely, ultimately. That doesn't mean we can't have any other desires. Supremely, ultimately, for the Lord Himself. For the giver, not the gifts. And here's the point. I think it's bolded. The absence of blessings, which one wise man in our church said a couple weeks ago, trials could be blessings. Amen. But the absence of blessings as the world sees it, within them rejection, vanity, reviling, illness, poverty, often this is the crucible in which we learn to love God for God. For God. Let's just be real honest. Do I love God for God? Not what He gives me. Not what He's protected me from. Oh, that I'm thankful. Amen. And I am appreciative. All right. But do I love God? Do I? I'm asking myself the question, do I love God for God? Because if not, David Pallison Dr. David Pallison ends with a great sentence. In our idolatry, we instate gifts as supreme goods and make the giver into an errand boy of wandering desires. So when we go and think about what God's doing and then ask Him to show us, let's be ready to receive what He, what he wants to give us and how He's forming us. Otherwise, we are double-minded. We're speaking out of both sides of our mouths. Always remembering He's at work to make me more like His Son because having believed in Him, I get to be with Him forever. And thirdly, if you've thought about this and you're asking God for it, this one may shock you. Boast about it to other people. Boast. Let the brother of lowly brother boast. That's a word that means to talk about. In its negative sense, it's to talk about yourself. But here, I would say, boast to others how God's using trials to humble you and make you more like Jesus. Second tier application of that, be in community and boast of the struggles you have with somebody. Our lives are personal, but they are not private. Boast. Here's how God's using this trial in my life because it's an encouragement to us. And if you're not boasting and letting other people know, man, God is at work, and just even be honest, I've been thinking, I've been asking, and I know He's working on my perspective here. If you're not, you're not living out this command. It's an imperative in James. Boast. See, we live in a world that, uh, in America, it's, it's public intoxication and private consultation. And we as Christians don't go about world like that. It should be public conversation with our brothers and sisters. Count it all joy. My brothers and sisters, my brothers, my family, here's how God's working on me. But we live in 
a world and we've kind of brought this into the church that I don't want to really share with you what's really going on in my heart because if you really knew who I was, you really wouldn't like me and then if you didn't like me all, everything would crumble. That's just not true. I want to know about you. I want you to know about me. I had a conversation with a guy today, this morning. He was sitting up. He asked me, how are you doing? Got to thinking about that and I talked to him kind of surface and I need to go back to him after the sermon and say, here's how I'm doing. I just gave you a, right? I just gave you a, I'm just running, you know. He didn't want to know that I was running. He wants to know about my heart. Boast. Not of yourself, but how God's working and using trials to shape you more like Jesus. Boast. And finally, implied from verse 4 and verse 12, we've got to persevere. Let endurance. It's a weird Greek construction. How do I let endurance? Endure. Persevere to the end. There's an eternal promise. This isn't going to happen forever. And if it does, and you do lose your life on earth, not having received some things you might have thought you should have received, just know God's got something better, far better than you can think or imagine. Persevere to earth's end knowing you've got heaven's reward. Ian Bounds in his book on prayer, you can tell where the Lord's working on me, patience has its perfect work in the school of delay. Ow. I mean, I, I live in a microwave world. I put a something in the microwave, oatmeal. Right? Organic Kirkland oatmeal. It's yummy. You put it in a bowl, a little bit of water, one minute, I've got food. And I take that mentality out of the microwave, eat it, Take that mentality. Okay, I'm going to put in a chapter today. I'm sanctified. I'm going to come up with a plan. People will follow. <laughs> Be patient. These are your brothers and sisters. Not everybody is like you. Okay. Be patient. Persevere. It doesn't happen overnight. You're, you don't get in shape overnight. You don't get in biblical shape overnight. And we are not conformed to God's image overnight. Otherwise, what would we do at our baptism? I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And off to heaven they go. No. Because we raise them back up as a picture of newness of life. And guess what, little buddy? You're going to face trials. But James has a good word for you. So all of life... Let's just summarize. It is a one trial to the next. If we have that perspective, we won't really be shocked when they do come. It's one little trial, large trial. It's one trial after the next. And every now and then, every now and then, we will have a uh, times on the mount. Remember when Peter went on the mount, the Mount of Transfiguration? You know what he said? I'll put up a quick shade. That's what I'll do. I will put up a quick shade for you and Elijah and Moses. It is good for us to be here, is his exact words. And a voice from heaven said, listen to him. Peter wants to stay there. It's much nice on the mountain. Tent, shot a goat, got coffee, got my little dry ramen noodle. It's good up here. I didn't remember the rocks I had to climb to get, but it's good up here. But we're not made for there. Listen to this final quote. It should be up there. 
This is, I read this, I think I read this in 97. And it's a good one. J. Oswald, uh, I think it's Oswald Chambers. And he has a little devotional. And this is from it. It's from October. It says, We have all had times on the mount when we've seen things from God's standpoint and we've wanted to stay there. But God will never allow us to stay there. The test, James' language, of our spiritual life is the power to descend. If we have the power to rise only, something is wrong. It is a great thing to be on the mount with God. Amen? One day we will be. It's going to be awesome. But a man only gets there in order that afterwards he may get down among the devil-possessed and lift them up. And we are not built for mountains and, and dawns and aesthetic affinities. Those are for moments of inspiration, that is all. We are built for the valley, for the ordinary stuff we are in. And that is where we have to prove our mettle. Spiritual selfishness always wants repeated moments on the mount. We feel we could talk like angels and live like angels if we could only stay on the mount. Times of exhortation are exceptional. They have their meaning in our life with God, but we must beware lest our spiritual selfishness wants to make them the only times. We are apt to think that everything that happens is to be turned into useful teaching. It is to be turned into something better than teaching vis-a-vis into character. Pauline language. The mount is meant to the mount is not meant to teach us anything, it is meant to make us something. There is a great snare in asking what is the use of it. In spiritual matters, we can never calculate that on that line. The moments on the mountaintops are rare moments, and they are meant for something in God's purpose. It's like, and some of you have done this, if you've gone to a, whether for me it would be a, a pastor's conference, or you've gone to a conference and there's a motivational speaker, and you're at the conference and you just, yes! If I could only stay here, right? If I could only stay here and just hear Francis Chan every day, man, that is, woo, life would be good. No, you've got to take what you've learned and you've got to eat it yourself, assimilate it into your own life, and you've got to go back and share it with others. Trials test our faith. That is, God uses them. They serve a joyful purpose. He's given us prayer as the power to get it through. He will humble us and give us a new perspective. And if we make it to the end, we are steadfast. We are faithful. We do not compromise. There's a prize. There's a prize. That should keep you going. You've got family issues. You've got financial issues. You've got physical issues. Know this. God's using them. It's not arbitrary. It's not without purpose. And if we can think, ask, and boast, and persevere, man, I can't wait. It's going to be good. It wasn't random. didn't just happen. It's not just because. It's got a purpose. Father, (sighs) 
Oh, we just thank you for that cry. Thank you for the little life in there. Thank you for the grace that you've shown that couple. Father, I thank you for my earthly father's death. I boast of you in it. Otherwise, I never would have known you. You're good, you're able, and you will deliver us out of all affliction. In fact, your word says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. You are near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit. Thank you for being near. Thank you for being clear. And I pray that we would be a stronger church family because of James 2, James 1, 2-12. I pray that we would think well, we would ask appropriately, we would boast of you. And Lord, enable us to persevere to the end. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.